Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In season six, our disease films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. This 
This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the second in our Eddie Murphy in the 80s series with Martin Brest's 1984 film, Beverly Hills Cop. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. You can subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're a fan of espressos, but only if they have a lemon twist, then drink up and play along with the Next Reel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. And with that, let's turn it over to Games Master Stephen Smart, currently drinking his own espresso with a lemon twist, to find out who won this week. Hey guys, this week's movie was The Rainmaker from 1997, directed by Francis Ford Coppola and starring Matt Damon, Danny DeVito and Claire Danes. Congrats to this week's winner at AQS Morning View, who guessed it on Image 1. You are entered into the 2017 Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday. So thanks guys, and uh, see you later. And we've got a blot spot, friend of the show Ben Lutz, written in with a rebound on Trading Places. I'm not sure what it is that I've always disliked about Trading Places. Perhaps it is the trouble I have sympathizing with rich people problems. Maybe it's the confusing nature of the finale, or maybe it's the blend of traditional comedy that suddenly veers into farcical spoof territory on the train. Whatever it is, I just don't enjoy this movie as much as I do other Eddie Murphy comedies. My ranks should go up from here. Your rank 71, my rank 209. You win some, you lose some. What are you going to do? But at least we get gets us into Eddie Murphy and uh, and, and a good uh, Dan Aykroyd film. I, that, you know, celebrated for their start. How about that? Well, and, you know, 48 Hours was before this, but I think 48 Hours is just a really bad film, so <laughs> some people like it, but I don't know. I'd much rather talk about Trading Places than that. That's the truth. And with that, Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. So my trailer is uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, which I kind of can't believe... We haven't talked about it being, you know, that we talked about so many uh, superhero films on our film board and and we tend to like them quite a bit. So, uh, yeah, somehow when this trailer came up, we just kind of uh, skipped over it for some reason. But this is the, the new Spider-Man. This is Tom Holland playing Spider-Man and Peter Parker. And, uh, you know, little Tom Holland looks like a uh, geeky little teenager. I mean, he's 20, but he still has that look. And he looks younger than Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield. I liked both of those guys as Spider-Man. I thought they both brought a lot to the table. And I liked, um, you know, the first two Tobey Maguire Spider-Man films. I liked the first Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movie. I'm a fan. I, I just love Spider-Man. He's always been my favorite uh, comic book character. Uh, I think Tom Holland is going to be an equally great Spider-Man, and I love that they've kind of gone back to an old-school look with him. Very, very primary colors as far as his red and blue. He's got the the little web uh, flaps between his uh, or under his arms. Just everything about it looks super cool. And I love that they finally you know, are playing nice here with uh, Sony and Marvel and that we've got Iron Man popping up in here and even Happy pops up. So it's great. I think it's really exciting that we're blending all of this together and it's a new Spider-Man film. And we've got my favorite part of the whole thing is that Michael Keaton is actually coming on board to play the villain. And he's going to be the vulture. And I am just super excited about having him involved uh, in the film. I'm a little nervous, I will say, that it looks like it's kind of going the the robo costume like they did with Green Goblin in the very first Spider-Man film uh, with Vulture's look. 
but you know, I'm definitely willing to, uh, you know, forgive it and see how it turns out. So what'd you think? I, when we talked about the last Spider-Man movie, uh, maybe it wasn't the last one, but maybe it was the one right before that. We we were really celebrating that because it felt like such a an homage to what we knew about the character of Peter Parker. And I think this movie hinges on Tom Holland's ability to play Peter Parker. So I am really looking forward to that because I think he at least appears from the trailer to personify who I know as Peter Parker, um, you know, better than than I have seen done in the past. And I think it has been done well in the past. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to that. I like that it is back in high school. I think there's a lot to, uh, to look forward to there. Um, I am super curious about, uh, you know, some of the unnamed uh, characters uh, in the film. What is Donald Glover going to do in this movie? Why haven't we seen anything from Donald Glover yet in the, in the trailer? trailer? Um, Martin Starr. What is Martin Starr doing? I love Martin Starr. He's a very funny guy. I'm excited to see what he does. He's Mr. Harrington. I don't know who that character is. Probably some a random teacher at school, but I love that he's he's credit on here. So there are some some pieces that I'm really really looking for, forward to. I'm trying not to get my hopes up too too high. I don't mind the RoboCop or the the RoboCop. Uh, I wouldn't <laughs> mind if RoboCop was in this movie. Let's say that I I don't mind the Robo suit, the Vulture's Robo suit, as much as as you are worried about. Um, you know, I'm I'm fine with that. It's it's practically an Iron Man movie anyway, so I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to get excited about it. It's going to be, I, I will say, I mean, if they had the Vulture in a skin-tight green outfit with the wings and everything like he was in the in the comics yeah. and kind of the cartoon, it would be completely silly. Obviously, they have to redesign it and make it something that could actually work. So, you know, I'm definitely giving them the benefit of the, of the doubt here, so. You know, some of the best character stuff in in the the comic series for me was between uh Tony Stark and Peter Parker and and you know them during the civil war as they are you know uh, you know they're they're testifying in front of congress i mean was some of the most interesting writing in that series and so i am i am most excited i think about having these two characters on screen they're they're real human counterparts on screen together i think there there's a lot of opportunity for that so um that that's probably got my my hopes up the most i wonder how many birdman jokes they had with michael keaton yeah right <laughs> god no i feel so stupid i didn't even make that connection he's totally gone from birdman to birdman oh I know. man that's awesome it's really funny batman birdman vulture <laughs> Oh, it's just so that's funny. awesome. Totally cornered the market on bird characters. Right. You go, Michael well, Keaton. Absolutely. Well, this is the big uh, kind of the 4th of July weekend uh, movie for uh, next summer. It kind of starts July 6th on uh, half the world and finishes July 7th, the other half the world. Only Lithuania, Hong Kong and Japan get it later. Lithuania is July 14th. Hong Kong's July 28th and Japan is August 11th. So they've got to wait a while. My trailer, Andy, is uh, the new film from Ama Asante, uh, A United Kingdom. It is a, it looks really interesting uh, to me. It is the story of uh, Rosamund Pike and David Oyelowo. Uh, they are playing a, a mixed race couple. He's a prince of an African nation and they fall in love in England and decide to marry in spite of great political turmoil that their mixed race um, relationship uh, brings, both in 
the United Kingdom and uh, in his home nation as well. Uh, Ama Asante, I think, is a, you know, I haven't seen a, a much of her stuff. Uh, you know, she's uh, behind A Way of Life in 2004 and Bell more recently in 2013, uh, which was lovely. But th- that's all I have seen of hers. She was an actress. Uh, she was on Grange Hill uh, in uh, the late 80s. She's uh, been on a, a couple of uh, TV shows uh, throughout the, the 90s. Uh, but in terms of her films, uh, she directed Way of Life, Bell, A United Kingdom, and Where Hands Touch. She's filming right now. But I will say she is incredibly charming. I have heard her interviewed a number of times over the last month, and I think she is such a charmer. Uh, based on Bell, my impression of her as a director, she's a very precise director, and I, I, and, and, uh, I really look forward to seeing her hand on this film. I think it's, uh, there's a great opportunity here, not to mention, of course, Rosamund Pike, who is terrific. David Oyelowo is terrific. This is, I, I think there's just a great opportunity for a, a really solid film. What'd you think? Yeah, I totally agree. I think the casting is really what's going to make it. I mean, these two um, principal characters that we have are both just mesmerizing actors, and I really love watching everything they do um, and having them together. I mean, they, they look like a, an authentic couple. It looks like a really authentic um, struggle that they're going to be going through here. And I'm very excited about it. Um, I, I don't know enough about this director at all. I never saw Bell. I heard good things, but I just don't know anything. So when I looked at the at the uh, the people behind the story, I just uh, you know I kind of was like, well, I, I, I don't know any of them. I, I I'm curious about it though. It looks like a really interesting story to make a film about, and it seems like the sort of story that you know we probably could use these days. Yeah, I think so too. And and you know, I didn't mention another curious young actor, Tom Felton. Uh, it, not that young, but we saw him as Draco Malfoy through the Harry Potter movies. He's not Emma Watson, you know. He didn't. He hasn't testified in front of uh, the United Nations. He hasn't. He he doesn't have a circle to his uh, credits yet. He doesn't have that kind of of cred coming out of Harry Potter. He's not. He doesn't have that big of a name yet. Uh, but man, I have a feeling this guy's going to be around a long, long time. He is. Uh, I, I think his performances have have been terrific. You know, he's on The Flash now uh, on um, TV, and so uh, it's interesting to see him every week and then show up in a movie like this. Uh, so I'm. He's he's got a lot of irons in the fire. It'll be interesting to see what they do with him. This is an interesting one because it is. Um, uh, it's been out for a little while, particularly international audiences have been able to see it since September. Um, it's been in Canada and UK since September, October, Sweden, uh, November, a lot of film festivals. Uh, we don't get it in the United States until February 10th. Uh, so it, it's coming right around the corner. Uh, so be on the lookout. There you go. United Kingdom. Oh, Andy, Todd's looking for you. He's really pissed. You know what he said? This is your worst F up ever. Personally, I don't think that's true. Eddie Murphy is a Detroit cop. Hey! On vacation in Beverly Hills. Hi, Fan. My name is Sales, and how can I help you? Um, yeah, I'm looking for Miss Jenny Summers. It's very busy today. Maybe you give me your name? My name is Axel Foley. And uh, what is pertaining? I didn't understand what you said. Pertaining, what it's meaning, regarding. Oh, what's it regarding? I'm an old acquaintance of hers. Donay? One moment. Only run and tell me, Summers, that uh, Mr. Ahmed Foley is here to no, see. Axel Foley. Axel. Ahmed, Ahwell, Axel. Foley is here to see her. 
These are all the coins. Don't discover this stuff. It's I'm like sorry. the breast of a dog to scrub for the customer. It's not sexy, it's animal. No, it's not sexy at all. May I offer you something to drink? A wine, a cocktail, a, a espresso? No, I'm fine, thank you. I'll make it myself right back there with a little lemon twist. It's good. Try it. No, I'm, I'm fine. Beverly Hills Cop, Andy, 1984, directed by Martin Brest, uh, written by Daniel Petrie Jr., Danilo Bach. Uh, we will talk about that for sure. The controversy it took to get this movie made stars Eddie Murphy, Judge Reinhold, John Ashton, Lisa Eilbacher, Ronnie Cox, Stephen Burkhoff, James Russo, Jonathan Banks, and so many more. It is a, a wonderful cast, a pinnacle of the 80s, wouldn't you say? How did this hit you? I thought this film held up really well. I was really impressed that it didn't feel too 80s-ish, you know? It actually just felt like a great action comedy, action cop comedy. You know, I, I thought they uh, they built a solid story with really interesting characters that I had a great time watching. I mean, it's got a few little uh, a few little hiccups in there, but for the most part, it's like, gosh, this is this really still works well. I'm not I'm not sure it held up as well for me as I had hoped it would. Uh, but there is still, I think, a lot of fun to be had with this movie. One of the things that I I was I've always kind of had in my head incorrectly is that this film came after Lethal Weapon. And so the opening scene in the truck, you know, is it cigarettes or Christmas trees? You know, you're not quite sure where the big opening chase is. That, you know, who's, who's derivative is, you know, is, is uh, Beverly Hills, Hills Cop a, a derivative film? But that's not true at all. Beverly Hills Cop came four years before. I never straightened out the date math in my head. Uh, and, and that makes me feel like Beverly Hills Cop is actually... Uh, dare I say, more original than I'd given it credit for. Uh, what I love about it is this this character, right, of Axel Foley as a movie detective. He is so pleasantly not crazy or divorced or an alcoholic or suicidal or just generally mean-spirited or idiotic. He's not Ace Ventura. Like, there's just a lot to like about this character because he just looks like he's enjoying the world that he lives in and and to, he's doing good. He's much more uh, kind of that that sort of uncomplicated superhero character than, uh, than some of the other movie, uh, movie detectives, certainly of the time and since. So I, I really liked it. I, I feel like that cuts both ways the film and the character are, are pretty one-dimensional uh it's a, a pretty straightforward story simple um it cuts right to it and uh so if i feel like if you're gonna enjoy this film you're gonna enjoy it because um you know you're you're right into the story and you ha- you enjoy the charisma of eddie murphy and these detectives on screen and and not you you're not likely feeling particularly challenged by the narrative no and i don't think this was a film designed to feel challenged by the narrative you know, it's a very straightforward uh, kind of a detective story, cop story, figuring out uh, who done it, really. Um, but I think that um, the the writers, along with uh, Martin Brest directing it, really uh, honed in on creating really authentic characters. I mean, I, I don't know. I really bought into every character in the film. They all felt really lived in. When you have moments between um, Eddie Murphy um, talking with uh, Lisa Eilbacher, uh, when he first comes in and uh, hooks up with Jenny again back in Beverly Hills, it feels like they are old friends. You know, everything just felt authentic. And I think that says a lot about the script that these guys wrote and how uh, Marty ended up directing it. It just felt um, it felt real. And so even if it might be a little on the one-dimensional side and just a really straightforward sort of uh, 80s cop comedy, 
it worked uh, really well, I thought. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I was trying to think of other great black detectives that we've seen on screen, and I could only come up with a couple. And so I'm curious if you have come up with more. Sidney Poitier uh, and uh, Morgan Freeman, you know, this ain't no seven. Uh, and, you know, I feel like we have to throw Danny Glover in there, although it wasn't, you know, that that movie, Lethal Weapon, the series didn't really, wasn't really about challenging him as a primary detective. It was definitely more a buddy movie first. Um, and, and he often played more of a foil to Mel Gibson than, than you know, sort of primary crime solver. Uh, it, can you think of any other great black character detectives? The one that comes to my head is Denzel Washington in Devil in a Blue Dress. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. Denzel. Which I thought was just a fantastic film. Um, I, and I'm sure there are others. I don't know. I guess I, I just didn't um, have that in my head as something to think about. But yeah, I'm sure there are some. But but none of those none of those films, at least until Lethal Weapon, felt like they had much of a comedy vibe to it. Was this the origin of cop comedy films? It seems to be a little bit. I mean, I know they had some more of the the slapsticky sort of comedy that were just straight up comedy. This, uh, you know, from from what I've been looking at, it sounds like this was kind of the origin of you know an action cop film that also let them be funny and uh, you know i think that's pretty interesting that you know this is kind of a a turning point because certainly we've had our share of that and like you brought up lethal weapon i think that's a perfect example of a film that likely um was uh if not directly at least at least you know kind of there were some spiritual elements that they brought over from what this film was doing as far as how they kind of created that film the film it it was i i I don't know. I hasten to say troubled getting it made because it took a long time to get it made and get the right script. And it went through a lot of hands to get the film made before it ended up in Daniel Petrie Jr.'s pen. Uh, but it it may be the path that it really needed to take. I think it just took a while to gestate and, and for people to figure out exactly what the movie was going to be. I don't think it was ever actually troubled. It just... Yeah. You know, it just they were trying to figure out what it was. I mean, orig- originally we'll get into the kind of the origins of the story itself, but but uh Simpson and Bruckheimer um had this idea and they they brought in Danilo Bach and talked to him about it and had him kind of pitch a story version of it and they liked it, so they had him they had him write the idea. Uh, the script was Beverly Drive. This was back in 81 about a cop from Pittsburgh named Ellie Axel. And he wrote this original script about it. It was very action oriented, uh, and you know that's that's kind of what where the script was. And as things evolved, and it, it, at that point, it actually drew Sylvester Stallone in. That was where they were going with this. Um, but it it kind of fizzled and died. Nothing happened with the script. They couldn't get it off the ground. So they all, everybody went on to different projects. Several years later, I think it was after the success of Flashdance the year before, um, Simpson and Bruckheimer finally wanted to get this script off the ground. They wanted it to be their next film. and But they felt, you know what, let's do some rewrites, amp up the comedy, and really kind of make this uh, more of a comedy direction. And I think by that point, they had brought Marty Brest on as the director, and he wanted to kind of have that action comedy blend. And uh, they brought Daniel Petrie Jr. on to write the screenplay. And so... Uh, Petrie Jr. got the screenplay credit, and then he and Bach both got story credits. I feel like we forgive a number of points, story points, in the script because of its comedy. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I think that 
in this sort of film, there are going to be some of those story elements that happen, um, especially through modern eyes. I think things definitely happen um, back in the story here that, you know, it's like, okay, that makes no sense, but it's it's a you know breezy cop comedy. I'm going to let it slide. And and there are things you would would have seen in other, for example, Daniel Petrie Jr. Uh, uh, stories, Turner and Hooch. Uh, I, I'm surprised you didn't mention Turner and Hooch. I know that's one of your very very favorite films. Hey, don't knock it. Really, I love it. <laughs> and and uh, he also did uh, the Big Easy, which was an, uh, you know I haven't seen that in years and years and years. Uh, uh, Dennis Quaid and Ellen Barkin. Speaking of strange murder mysteries. Daniel Petrie Jr. is behind a, a number of these films in, in the period, late 80s, early 90s. And so I, I feel like watching this movie on the big screen, I was I probably didn't, didn't think much about some of these points. But in order to get uh, Axel into a meeting with the uh, get him arrested into a meeting with the detectives, they he goes into, uh, you know, uh, Victor Maitland's place of business, into his building, and after a an argument, Maitland has his goons throw Axel through a plate glass window that is right next to a door. And it's that shattering window, and the police are called. They show up right on time, and they then arrest Axel. And I found myself saying, why did they throw him through that glass window? That is such a messy way to get him arrested. Uh, and, and it looked really stupid to me at, at this point. But you know what? It serves a point. It's a, it's a cog that gets us connected uh, to... The uh, our two bumbling detective friends uh, on the force. Did you have any of those moments? Well, that was absolutely one of them because I mean they could easily walk him through the door into the hands of the Beverly Hills PD who right. could take him in, right? And yeah. I mean that could totally have been that way. And there's no reason to throw him through the window other than to get a laugh. And that's I mean that's why it's there. It's not a great laugh though. I mean it's, I d- it's yeah kind of- I didn't laugh. It was flat. Well, it's 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 funny in a in a way that's like okay, that's funny that they throw him through the window, but then it's like, but yeah, but it's their own window of their own building. There was no reason to do it. It's like this. It's when you think about it, it's just complete nonsense that that happens. Now, I've heard I've heard a defense of this sequence that uh, you know one of the one of the critics said that the the case is made that they cleaned up the mess in the script. In this particular area, because it was that they were finding a challenge getting everybody connected uh, by later uh, when he's finally fully is finally in the Beverly Hills Police Department. Um, you know, we hear Bogomil say uh, the, the uh, Lieutenant Bogomil say, you know, we have this prominent citizen, Victor Maitland. He called and said that Foley had gone in and started tearing up the place. And that it it read to me as more of a throwaway line, and um, uh, it it didn't justify it. It, it was insufficient to justify that particular um, point. No. And another issue is the same thing. It's like at the end of the story, uh, you know, we've got Maitland. I mean, sure, he's kidnapped. uh, He's kidnapped a girl and everything. But they all go back to his mansion, and then there's this huge gunfight at his mansion. And it's like, I don't know, it made me question. I mean, this is a guy who up to this point has been, according to our characters in the film, a very upstanding, a very well-respected figure in the art community in the country. 
He's a very important person. Why is he, one, going to have all these people with machine guns at his mansion, and two, bring a kidnapped girl back to his mansion, and then have this huge gunfight, you know, to get these guys at his mansion? It's like he's ruining everything that he's built up to this point. I know it kind of fits the ending of the film and all that, and we need to have the big gunfight, but in context of the story, it's like, this is absurd. He would never have set his life up this way, where all of this would happen at his home and his life would be destroyed. Because if he if he succeeds and kills these guys... You know, he's still screwed. It's it's like everybody's going to go, well, why did you have all these machine guns at your mansion? And all that? It's just there's no sense to it. That feels like a, a another great weakness to me, that they had never made the case throughout the the context of the movie in that character that he would ever do anything like that. There was there was never a, and and I think that they could have they they could have had the end of this film, uh, you know, if he had been a much more sort of uh, uh, much more sort of thuggish or goonish, you know, leading it. But they made him such a sophisticate that I think you're absolutely right. I think it's crazy. Uh, it it definitely felt like uh, you know felt more like a Stallone or Schwarzenegger movie of the period. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, he's smuggling cocaine. Obviously, he's going to be in that world. But do it at some other place other than his mansion. It just yeah. it makes no sense for the story. And and you don't necessarily. I mean, p- part of the weakness there is not just the machine gun. And there, the, the machine gun stuff is absurd. Um, you know, and that's that holds up as particularly dated. But that the primary sort of um, uh, stalking throughout the mansion with him with the gun, and he's he had, he shoots fully, and then they he stalks him throughout the the uh, the mansion uh, to the final shootout where Bogomil and Foley actually are able to shoot him that feels uh, also unjustified like it it's it, I'm I'm not quite I, I don't quite buy that he's you know that he would have resorted to uh, or that he was desperate enough to to pick up a gun himself I don't think they made that case sufficiently enough yeah it's it's a little it's a little rough but this is a Simpson Bruckheimer film from yeah. the '80s. In that context, it all works, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I mean, absolutely. It, it fits. It fits what they were doing with the story, even if it's absurd. <laughs> Martin Brest, uh, director, went on to become, uh, I guess, Howard Hughes <laughs> after he made this. Uh, after his uh, brief stint as a director, uh, it doesn't have a whole lot of credits, uh, but he has a particular knack for this kind of movie. What do you think of his direction? Yeah, you know what I what I like about him, and we we talked about him a while ago when we talked about Midnight Run, which is mm-hmm. uh, a fantastic film. Uh, he really does kind of have a good sense of doing this sort of action comedy bit. You know, I, I think that um, what works well, and even if you look back at the clips that you can find online of of his uh, short film Hot Dogs for Gauguin from when he was a, a film student at NYU, uh, you know, he, he just has a sense for kind of that action comedy and uh, putting some really interesting characters in it. And, and uh, you know, I, I think what he does well is give us a real good sense of these characters and kind of play within the genre as far as as what they're doing in that genre, but making it all feel really authentic. So I think that he does a great job here, and I think he was a great choice for Simpson and Bruckheimer to bring on to actually make this film. 
and interesting that he gets this film. I mean, you look at uh, we we talk a lot about how you know these young directors are getting big budget films, and and how that's a that's kind of a novelty or that's kind of a new trend, right? Where you're you know we've we've talked about is it a is it a, a strategy to scapegoat? Is it really celebrating the talent? What are the challenges that go on with that? We've talked about that before. Well, this is kind of the same thing, right? I mean, he did Hot Dogs for Gauguin as a short. It was remade as Hot Tomorrows as a, a, a feature, and then he did Going in style, which I think is ironic that that would sneak into our conversation after your uh, really reluctant trailer pick last week. (laughs) Um, And then Beverly Hills Cop with Eddie Murphy, who by now was, was, you know, a a much more bankable star. Uh, And uh, so arguably, it's it's a very similar kind of trend. Here we are going from 1979 going in style to Beverly Hills Cop 1984, don't you say? Don't you think? Well, yeah, and you say it's a growing trend. I, I think what it shows us is that this trend has been around a lot longer a than little, we yeah. give credit to. This is something I think uh, producers had been doing uh, probably long earlier than we ever imagined, finding these young and up-and-coming talents that they – say, hey, this person has a really interesting voice. Let's bring them on. Obviously, the producers are still wanting to find a way that they can have a little bit of control, a little bit of say. But I think it is it is telling that uh, they would try to find people who had new and unique voices. I mean, and but it is a really interesting choice as a director for this because, uh, I mean, I haven't seen Going in Style and like I talked about when I talked about that trailer. Um, I, I'm very curious, though, to see kind of what the action comedy blend is in that uh, that kind of brought them to say, "Hey, he'd be great for this." Me too, uh, and and I, you know, you look at what he does right after. We've already mentioned Midnight Run. I mean, that is a um, uh, that has a very similar feel. What's so interesting about these two movies, and and I'm I'm intentionally leaving out Scent of a Woman and Meet Joe Black. Um, although you really could say the same thing about Scent of a Woman, is that Breast's style really is uh, to to not have that much of a style of his own, right? I mean, this this movie in particular, Beverly Hills Cop, uh, absolutely showcases who Eddie Murphy wants to be in this film. Like, this is, this is a, a film that lets him shine in the ways that Eddie Murphy shined in 1984. Um, Midnight Run, what a weird pairing that that was, Having seen the movie now, you realize that that uh, uh, those two guys were absolutely perfect together on screen. And, you know, his sort of the, the machine that he puts in place is to let them shine on screen together. And I think that's, uh, you know, he's he's really good to let stars be stars. Well, I think where he he shines and I mean, I think his mark, you could almost say, is is getting the script developed to a place where these actors can inhabit these roles. Like I said, they feel really authentic. And I think you could say that about all of these films, is that he he puts these the right actors into the script um, with a with solidly written characters and and makes sure that these guys can fully develop them. So I think that's kind of his stamp is just knowing how to make sure that the characters in his scripts feel uh, absolutely authentic. And, you know, let's take it all the way to meet Joe Black, right? I mean, would you ever have expected Brad Pitt to be able to uh, to to pull that off? I, I don't I, I don't think you and I have ever talked about meet Joe Black, but I, I, I found that I haven't a, seen a, it. So <gasps> I can't speak to it. What? I know. Are you? I, that's not a joke. <laughs> I've never seen it. <laughs> How have you never seen meet Joe Black? I, Haven't you done a Brad of... Pitt series? Oh, that was Tom Cruise. <laughs> 
Oh, no, man. I, I kind of skipped that one. Everybody said it wasn't worth watching. so I. It's of... worth watching. Gosh, how Andy... You All go right, see I'll that movie, you, at least so okay, we can talk okay. about it. I found it, it, it's long, but I found it deeply moving. And I think that's another uh, one of those experiences of, it, you have to be at a certain place in your life, I think, to understand it. But God, I, I would never have pegged Brad Pitt. That is something that, uh, that you know, I, I really thank Martin Brest for, for doing, is pulling this same trick about uh, creating these the space for these actors to authentically inhabit these parts, and and I think Meet Joe Black is one where you can you, whatever you think of the movie, uh, I, I think you can say that about those characters for sure. Well, and you know, I do want to see it because I mean, honestly, his filmography is not that long. I want to see yeah. Meet Joe Black, and I am going to muscle through watching Gigli, uh, his final film, just to see exactly what happened. Uh, this was, yeah. you know. It was uh, his uh, first original screenplay since Going in Style when he wrote that. And I don't know what exactly what happened, but it sounded like the script was very interesting, a very kind of strange ending and all this sort of stuff. But the production company, it sounds like they wanted him to um, to change it. Now, he had final cut and they, they, they knew that. So what they did is they kind of said, well, then you have to do reshoots and they made him do all these reshoots and all these reshoots and all these reshoots and finally somehow they got creative control away from him and totally cut the film up and obviously it turned into a huge disaster everybody still makes fun of it and um it was his last film he hasn't directed and that was 2003 so it's been uh now 14 years and he still hasn't done anything so i'm really curious to go back and look at his films to see exactly what it was that kind of broke him because he hasn't done anything and he's kind of disappeared off the map. So I'm curious what happened with him. That's the Howard Hughes reference, right? I mean, he he just, he went dark. He is, I imagine him sitting alone in a theater watching uh, Gili over and over again. Uh, <laughs> Pining for what could have been. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he's uh, he's interesting. I, I He's one of those that I really, especially after seeing this film again, I really hope he comes back out and does something else new. Um, 14 years is enough. Martin, I know you're listening to the show. Come on out. Do, give us Give us something else to talk about. He's been, he's an, he's an interesting director because he really believes in his films. And I, I think that speaks highly of him. You know, he, to the point where uh, Scent of a Woman, when they cut that down for TV and for airlines, he actually dropped his name from it and put in Alan Smithy because he uh, wouldn't have his film go out without it being the way that he made it. So I think that speaks very highly of, of kind of him as a storyteller and, and making sure that what is shown is his vision. So... Uh, that's, that's a funny one too, because as a director, <laughs> Alan Smithy has 88 credits, uh, because it's a, it is a common pseudonym that, that we see from time to time. He also directed apparently Hellraiser 4 and Burn Hollywood Burn. Makes me wonder, um, why he didn't let Alan Smithy direct Gigli. That's actually, that's a great question. Uh, first shot, last shot. Yes. The first shot is a long shot of a factory. We later learn that we're in Detroit, uh, and then it leads into a montage of factory work. We get cars being made on an assembly line. We get just, you know, all the people of the city. It's definitely not Beverly Hills. You get a really nice, diverse group of people here. And a key part of the uh, the first shot is also setting up the tone with the 80s music as we get Glenn Fry kicking us off with The Heat Is On. 
And the last shot, uh, we're we're paying dividends to a joke that we had uh, witnessed earlier in the film. As Axel asks Billy and Taggart to join him for a drink, one bill won't one beer won't kill us. Taggart says they get in the car, they're ready to follow Axel. And our final final shot, it's a freeze on Axel as he's staring out the car window, and his eyes give us that wide, mischievous. Eddie Murphy uh, grin, and he uh, he leads the detectives into more mayhem, uh, and, uh, and that's how we close. Yeah, it's an interesting pairing, and you know, it's one of these examples of first shot, last shot, where I don't think there's a whole lot here, as far as uh, looking at thematically. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure we can pull something out of it, um, but it's interesting listening to Marty Brest talk about that last shot. He hates it. He hated having to freeze on this uh, freeze frame of Axel. He really didn't like it at all. Um, but it was a compromise he had to make um, in order to get a different scene in earlier in the film. I think what had to happen is he had to uh, cut something else that he was going to have for the ending is kind of what it sounded like in order to get this other shot between, uh, I think it sounded like it was between um, Axel and Jenny uh, that he wanted to make sure was in the film. And uh, so it was one of those compromises he made. And uh, yeah, it ended up not being an ending shot that he liked. So yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna, I don't, I don't want to belabor the point. I don't, I think you're right. I don't think there's a whole lot to, to talk about in terms of a pairing, but I do want to say, oh my God, I hate the heat is on. Oh, really? So much. <laughs> oh, God. The whole opening scene, the eighties music, it was, it was too much for me. A number of tracks that, that happened really in the first act. I think it's, it's heavy. The, the eighties tracks are heavy in the first act. Uh, and then it's pretty much another revision of, of the Axel F theme. And, uh, and so I was, I was grateful when we got over the hump and stopped hearing the eighties music, but wow, the heat is on. Ugh. I look forward to talking more about the music. <laughs> later in the show. <laughs> that was so funny. Uh, let's talk about the cast, shall we? Marjorie Simpkin and Rhonda Young were the casting directors to this, bringing together our wonderful cast of people. What I find is interesting, and we haven't really talked a whole lot about the Sylvester Stallone element of this yet, which we will talk about shortly, but Stallone was originally cast as the, the lead in this film, and all of the parts were actually cast when Stallone was the lead. Um, Eddie ended up coming on last. So uh, th- that's an interesting thing to think about as we look at the cast. All right. Eddie uh, Murphy is Axel Foley. Do we have anything else to say about Eddie um, in, in this particular film before we reflect on what is nothing to reflect on in the 80s or in the 90s and, and 2000s? Uh, of his <laughs> he, work? Really, he really did have a, a, a solid run of films in the 80s. And yeah, I mean, there's just not a whole lot of stuff afterward, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting, I thought, is that uh, you'll notice at the beginning, this is an Eddie Murphy production. This is uh, his first movie made under his own umbrella, not counting uh, his TV comedy special, Eddie Murphy Delirious, that he did uh, the year before. Uh, But it looks like that he was running things through Eddie Murphy Productions up through 99 with the TV show The PJs. So I thought that was kind of an interesting little uh, thing to learn about. Yeah. Uh, I I never saw the PJs. I don't. I'm not sure I ever. Without it, this was the first time I actually noticed Eddie Murphy Productions in the title role. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure I knew anything about his production company. I don't know much about it either, other than you know. I mean, he obviously was at a point that where his popularity had kind of gleaned him some ability to have a kind of a creative producer, a little bit of a hand in how things were shaped in the films, and so I think that coming on board this, that was probably uh, something that he wanted when he signed on is that you know I want to you know 
run this through my company. I want to have a little bit of creative control. Can we can we compare this um, this film to Fletch, nineteen eighty five? I I wrote that note in here because I, I thought it was so interesting how his character is so much like Fletch. I mean, he is so ready when he gets into a situation to jump into a different character. And uh, um, I found that really interesting. Um, Fletch came out afterward, but the mo- the books came out before this, right? Right, right. Much, yeah. m- much before. And that's, what's a, that's an interesting thing when I look at these characters, because that's sort of what I expected. I think that's what my sense memory was of Beverly Hills Cop before um, watching it this time around, that there was much more character work, much more sort of funny accents, and, and it was really much more subdued than, than I remembered. You know, he, he does a little bit of it. Um, in the beginning, we see him kind of in a character before he goes back to the police station in Detroit. Uh, but generally, if he goes into a character, it's going to be in response to uh, another character like Serge, uh, you know, his conversation with Serge. Generally, he plays it pretty straight. This is in contrast to Chevy Chase, who goes full character, full teeth, wigs, costumes, the works, uh, and ends up being a much more sort of... Uh, uh, I, I, straight-up comedic performance than I think we see in Eddie Murphy. Yeah, what Eddie Murphy does here, and I think he does it so well, is he just takes his actual persona and just and just puts a little twist on it to play some people in a particular moment. He does it with the, um, the Mater D at the Gentleman's Club when he goes to see Victor Maitland there. He does it um, when he's caught poking around in the, um, the Bond warehouse, whatever right. that place is. Um, I think those are really the only two places where he kind of creates kind of a fictional persona as to who he is. It's not like, like you said, he's not with a funny nose and all that sort of stuff. It's just he is himself and he uses that to his advantage. And that's what I thought was really interesting and a great difference from Fletch is how, you know, when he like, for example, when he gets caught in the warehouse, he just plays up the whole the whole fact that, you know, here's this black guy who's, you know, dressed down, we'll say. And he uses that to his advantage, uh, despite the fact that he has a badge to say, you know, and you guys just let me walk in here without stopping me or even questioning me. Um, I, I think that's really interesting. And just I think that's a really interesting spin on the way that he is approaching the situations. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It, it, it's it is interesting. And I, I think, you know, you can you can sort of see the, uh, uh, you know, the SNL alum kind of uh, taking over, looking at this movie and saying, hey, you know, we can do that Chevy Chaseier. Uh, it, 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 it is a different movie with the same sort of vibe. And, and in fact, I look at Beverly Hills Cop 2, uh, and, and you almost feel, even though I don't think it was as, as good of a movie, but you almost get the feeling that they were trying to sort of double down on, on that, on that particular angle of the character. You know, he takes control of the house, he does, uh, does all, all sorts of these kinds of, of, of things in the movie. I think more so than he does in, in this film. Um, like they were, they were trying to get the handle of who the character was, and they may have doubled down on the wrong things uh, leading into Beverly Hills Cop Three, Garbage Edition. I think he does a lot, um, brings a lot of interesting humanity to the character in a comedy. I think that's great. He's got some great moments with his buddy. He's got solid moments with the other cops. It's just, you know, in a cop comedy today, I feel like sometimes they amp up the comedy too much. And in this particular film, I think he, working with uh, with Martin Brest, were comfortable allowing some 
some serious moments to kind of be there with these characters that I don't think you would necessarily see as much these days. So I really appreciated those moments. And uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, he brought a lot to the table here. Uh, Judge Reinhold and John Ashton play uh, Detective Billy Rosewood and Sergeant Taggart. They are the uh, the duo that is charged with uh, following uh, Axel. Uh, these guys, uh, they're great together, right? We have the kind of little bit oafish, but much more sophisticated. Um, that's not the word I want. You can't be oafish and sophisticated, can you? Uh, we have the sort of <laughs> oafish, but much more experienced Sergeant Taggart uh, and uh, the very inexperienced uh, and, and bright-eyed uh, uh, Billy Rosewood. Uh, they they bring so much of the comedy through. They're, they're sort of the straight couple to Axel's uh, comedy, huh? Yeah, um, Marty told them when he was directing them, he's like, you guys just need to play it like an old married couple, <laughs> which I think works perfectly. He said to John Ashton, he's like, you're the henpecked husband. And to Judge Reinhold, he says, you're the, you're the you know, the, the young wife who's who's really concerned about all these, you know, little things. And, you know, you're just really trying to. <laughs> just you know take care of him you know and and so you know you get these funny conversations about i think you're drinking too much coffee and just (laughs) i love that it just it it really fits i mean they ended up being just a perfect comedy pair uh lisa eilbacher is uh, jenny summers the the um uh, she's the token woman (laughs) in the film (laughs) She was kind of an it girl in the uh, in in this period, right? I mean, she was in a, a lot of this sort of movie uh, of lesser renown, a bunch of TV shows, um, you know, Simon and Simon and that ilk. Uh, I remember mostly in Leviathan. Um, uh, what'd you think of her uh, in this film? Yeah, I thought she was fine. Uh, like I said, I thought it was um, uh, a good directing, good writing that she actually felt authentically like. A, an old friend of Axel's. And yeah. I really liked that about the film is that I actually bought that. So, and I think she played it well. I think she and uh, Eddie Murphy had a good chemistry, you know, from the moments where, you know, he does his laugh and she kind of imitates it or when she's talking about his little peach fuzz mustache on his face. I mean, I just loved all those moments. Mm-hmm. They felt like real people talking. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, most interesting of her part is is the legacy that came of her part from the Stallone draft. Right. That's the, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that I think is a sign of the times that in the Stallone draft of the script, she was Foley's love interest. Um, and apparently when they did the rewrites after Stallone left, they apparently felt the need that it couldn't be a former love interest or a current love interest. Um, it had to just be an old friend. So, I mean, it's just like, really? You couldn't yeah. do that back in 84? But apparently Really so. terrible. Yeah. Oh, how far we've come. Ronnie Cox as Lieutenant Bogomil. Oh, Ronnie Cox has been around a long time. And he's just so good. I mean, I love yeah. watching Ronnie Cox on screen. I mean, I love seeing him as a bad guy, RoboCop, Total Recall. I think he's just so great. But here, it's just like there's something about him and the way that he relates to to Eddie Murphy and just those little kind of smiles that he has. Even that he gives a hint of a smile when Eddie Murphy is spinning that story about the other two guys being super cops and all that. Like he he sees what he's trying to do. He gets it. Um and and he's will is it's like he's he's willing to go along with the whole thing until Sergeant Taggart ruins it all, you know. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, he's he's fantastic. We got if you, uh, uh, I I remember him mostly 
uh, from uh, obviously those films you mentioned, but oh my goodness, Deliverance had a dark impact on, on me. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, so there we go. Stephen Burkhoff, of course, we know him from the hit film Under the Cherry Moon uh, with Prince. Did you <laughs> yep, have anything else sure you do. wanted to add? <laughs> we sure do. I'm just glad that we also have Outland to uh, bring up when we talk about Stephen Burkhoff. <laughs> but he's a great villain. He really is. Like yeah. he's, you know, in Octopussy, he's a great villain. And, you know, he's just, he is a great villain in all these films. I love Truly, truly. He does it so well. We've got a couple of uh, of smaller parts that were, uh, were fun to see. Jonathan Banks as Zach. We've got him from Breaking Bad. A very young man in this film. Yeah, it's funny. When I saw him in Breaking Bad, I was I was like, gosh, he's just so familiar. I can't yeah. remember where I've seen him from. That's because he was like a, a that guy back, back here, you know? It's so funny. Totally, totally. I love that. Uh, Gilbert R. Hill as Inspector Todd. We meet uh, Inspector Todd in the very beginning of the film. Uh, he is uh, uh, Axel's boss. Uh, love that he was actually a Detroit detective at the time. Uh, went on to become a Detroit City Councilman and ran for mayor in 2001, but sadly lost. Uh, he was in, I think he was in all three of the Beverly Hills Cop movies. He was, uh, and that was all he was in. Yeah. Uh, and uh, sadly uh, joins the long list of performers we lost in 2016. Very sad, yes. Yeah, very sad. Bronson Pinchot uh, as Serge. This this is pretty much his iconic performance. Yeah, I, I mean, this is exactly uh, just, I mean, <laughs> such, uh, probably the, the main thing I remember him for, except for Balky Bartokamus, which really, I mean, it's the same character, right? Yeah, yeah. This is largely how he got the role of Balky in Perfect Strangers, right? Yeah, it's it's so funny. And he's so good. And, and you know, when he auditioned for this role, he kind of brought this uh, performance and they loved it so much. Actually, I don't think it was in the audition. I think it was when they started um, doing it. There were actually two characters written as the characters in the art gallery that dealt with Foley when he would come in and out of the art gallery. Pinchot was so good and so funny and bringing so much to the table that that uh, that Brest actually had to go talk to the other actor and say, you know, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to write your part out of the film because Pinchot <laughs> is bringing so much great stuff here. We just can't have two people in here. It's it is uh, I I love hearing Pinchot talk about it because he says that the character was inspired by his time in Beverly Hills and the ambiguous nationalities of shopkeepers which I think is such a a wonderful observation like like that there is a cultural gestalt of of those whose nationalities are are impossible to peg down uh and he was able to build this character offered I think that's I think that's fantastic and he's so funny. And everything yeah. that comes out of his mouth is just gold. And the, yeah. just everything between him and Foley. I mean, even when uh, when Billy comes in. I mean, it's all so perfect. Got a couple of bit parts. Paul Reiser shows up just in the very opening scene as Jeffrey, uh, a uh, co-worker in Detroit of Axel's. Fun to see him. Yes. And uh, Damon Wayans is the banana man. <laughs> We get him for just a second as a flamboyant clerk in the hotel, uh, and he uh, he passes Axel three bananas. They were supposed to be potatoes. There's a lot of controversy around that. I know, controversy. The potato versus the banana. It's, I actually found that really funny because there was supposed to be a scene of Axel who sneaks into a kitchen and grabs a potato, and there's a whole thing that the budget uh, it had to be cut due to budget constraints. And so the whole potato had to be changed to a banana. It's funny hearing stories about budget constraints when you're talking about uh, Bruckheimer 
Uh, yeah, you know, it just doesn't. The, the two <laughs> things don't seem to fit together. But uh, this was early in his career. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and obviously, we've got all the uh, the the cops, Beverly Hills cops, all looking like gods and goddesses. Yeah, what was great about that is, uh, you know, they wanted to originally make all of them look that way, but then they realized, you know, we can't do it with all of them. It's not going to work if we do, uh, you know, Billy and Taggart as the same sort of soap opera slash model sort of look. Um, so they said, okay, we'll get, we'll cast those guys with real people, but let's get everybody else to just look like a, a model. And and so you every time, you know, cops are taking Foley away from somewhere, they always look like they just walked off the set of a soap opera. It's very funny. Let's talk a little bit about getting it made. We we alluded to the, um, the, the long and winding road that it took this movie to get on screen. Where did it start? Well, according to Michael Eisner, it started with him back in 1975. He was pulled over for speeding, apparently. Um, he had a, a beat-up station wagon back then that he was driving in, and and he uh, it seemed that the, it didn't fit in with the symbol-conscious Hollywood. And uh, he said he went to the studio um, at the time he was president of Paramount and, and said that they had to do a movie about a Hollywood cop. Of course, then Don Simpson says, no, 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 the story origin was mine. In 1977, which was a couple years later, he said he came up with the whole idea about putting a cop from East L.A. and transferring them over to Beverly Hills. So it's just one of these arguments that these people have about wanting to claim, you know, it's theirs. But it's like, you know, you had a very inkling of a thought that, you know, people may have pulled from in order to conceive of the story. But, you know, it's these petty arguments that some of these people have. But yeah, the whole thing was, I mean, I I guess they originally cast Mickey Rourke and, uh, and they had him on board. Um, they had a, he had a holding contract of four hundred thousand uh, dollars apparently that, um, uh, which is a nice sum of money to hold mm-hmm. for that. But apparently uh, they took so long sorting things out that uh, the option ran out and he bailed and and left. And after that, it fell to Stallone. Uh, and and apparently, you know, we've mentioned Stallone's uh, version. He had had taken his hand at rewriting it to be less funny, more guns, uh, and. Uh, uh, started to lose that fish-out-of-water story. When the studio looked at what Stallone had done, I mean, here's a quote that Stallone says about what his script for Beverly Hills Cop would have been. He said, It would have looked like the opening scene from Saving Private Ryan on the beaches of Normandy. Believe it or not, the finale was me in a stolen Lamborghini playing chicken with an oncoming freight train being driven by the ultra-slimy bad guy. So that's kind of how Stallone pitched (laughs) his version of the film. Uh, The the studio looked at the script that he turned in and they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. We cannot do this with the budget that we have for this film. So the filmmakers felt really stuck. They weren't sure what to to do. Um, uh, Marty Brest said, you know, I think we need to cut some of this action out um, and uh, we need to tell Stallone that we have to cut back on all the action in order to actually make this for the budget. They told Stallone, who I guess was a real gentleman, totally understood. It sounded like he wasn't like uh, Mickey Rourke. You know, I, I don't know if he had a holding contract or what, but he didn't make them pay him any money or anything when he left. Nothing like that. So he's just, he totally got it. He left. And uh, they went on to uh, bring on Eddie Murphy. There is uh, a, a, apparently a rumor that the, that actually Stallone quit because they couldn't come to an agreement over the kind of orange juice he wanted to be served on set. I'm not sure at this point which story I believe, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know which one is more fun. <laughs> uh, he left. I, he'd, he'd actually changed his name to Cobretti in the script so that they could call him Cobra. And uh, uh, lest we not leave a uh, epilogue on this story, 
uh, he he did take much of his change uh, to to this script and fashion it into his character for Cobra. Right, which he made a few years later. Yeah. Murphy wears a uh, Mumford High School shirt throughout the film. Did you notice the Mumford High School shirt? Every time he was on screen with it. Do you, you really? <laughs> Mumford Phys Ed. Yeah, Mun- Mumford Phys Ed department. You know, I had never noticed it before, but now I'm a huge fan of Mumford and Sons, and that's new since the last time I saw this. So I, I noticed it this time and thought, what is that all about? <laughs> Turns right? out it's Mumford High School. It's uh, it, This is a, a school that was across the street from a murder scene that they researched in prep for the film in Detroit. Detroit PD had taken uh, had taken some folks from the crew over to this, um, to this location. They were... Um, learning about police work in Detroit and um, as uh, to honor the the school in the area uh, Murphy wears the shirt throughout the whole film well and I think even more so to honor Jerry Bruckheimer who went to school there and Gilda Radner even that's right <laughs> very popular high school right in the murder district apparently very funny I'm making that up I don't know if there's a murder district but I did also read that a number of places that uh, they wanted to shoot the film um, Brest was was willing and ready to go, and their police liaison refused to go in certain areas of Detroit. That's what I hear, uh, that, that as they were shooting, they went to certain areas that the police refused to go. Right, like filming some of the opening yeah. shots of the people and everything. Right, yeah, they right, wouldn't go right. with them. Yeah, very interesting. Interesting. Location, let's talk about locations. Yeah, I think what's interesting, you know, filming a story that takes place in Beverly Hills, they couldn't actually film much in Beverly Hills. It's not actually, at at least at the time, I don't know about today, but it was not a very film-friendly city. They had a lot of restrictions on when filming could be done, like, you know, here's a half-hour window, you can film in that window, and stuff like that. It was very frustrating for the filmmakers. So most of what they found was outside of Beverly Hills. The mansion was over in Santa Monica. You know, the just the, things were all over the place. Um, and even the Beverly Hills Police Department, they would not let them even look inside the building to see what it looked like. So the whole set that they built um, was really kind of a fantasy version of what uh, they kind of thought it was going to look like. Apparently, the Beverly PD set was built from scratch to look like it. Obviously, it was to look like the opposite of Detroit, which, you know... Uh, didn't look like this. It was influenced by Bress's own original concept art from uh, the NORAD set that he'd put together when he was uh, before he uh, left uh, War Games. And I didn't right. even know he'd been on War Games. Yeah, I guess he got fired. His his version that he was trying to make, I guess, was a much darker version. And uh, they opted to, which is funny because here's the guy who's kind of the action comedy guy. Yeah. But on that, he was going a much darker version. And they fired him so that John Batham could do the action comedy bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so strange. Uh, you, uh, your favorite hotel is the uh, Beverly Palm Hotel. I, I, you know, I had to do some research at this because, yeah, <laughs> Beverly Palm Hotel was the hotel that uh, Axel stays in, uh, kind of filling in for the Beverly Hills Hotel. He was paying $235 a night for a single room in 1984, although they upgraded him for free to the, uh, the deluxe suite. Today, the single room, which they call the superior room at the Beverly Hills Hotel, goes for $645 a night. And wow. the suites, I know, and the suites, they have a huge variety of rooms there, but the suites start at $895 a night. And the Grand Deluxe Suite goes for $5,400 a night. Wow. <laughs> so, and that's the one you, you usually stay in, right? That's where I usually stay when I go out to LA. Yeah. 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 
But their website says for the Grand Deluxe Suite, get a taste of modern California style in the Grand Deluxe Suite at one of the best five-star luxury hotels in LA. This contemporary suite features oak furniture, bronze light fixtures, and touches of silk, mohair, and leather. Take a seat (laughs) and enjoy the garden views or step outside onto the furnished private patio. The suite features one luxurious bedroom, a living room, powder room, and a full marble bathroom with a separate shower and bath. (laughs) It's awesome. Yes. So we're going to put that up for next year's Pony Prize, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Fine print. We're not putting that up for next year's Pony Prize. (laughs) But we are going to try and steal a robe. Yes, we'll work on that. Fine print. We don't endorse stealing anything. Uh, Interior of Maitland's mansion, they actually did shoot in Bugsy Siegel's mansion. Yeah, that was the, uh, I guess they had to use two mansions, one for the exteriors. Those people would not let them even go inside at all. And so all of the interiors had to be at a different place, which, yeah, like you said, formerly Bugsy Siegel lived there. That's very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, Lots of stunt work and the stunts, uh, it was a lot of flipping over railing and uh, getting shot. Was it a lot was of stunt stuff. a lot of that stuff, but some of the uh, the great driving stunts, especially the beginning, you've got that fantastic, uh, you know, truck uh, with the two trailers behind it, just barreling through the streets of Detroit, tearing everything up. Um, Eddie Dono, I guess, was the uh, the driver for that. And he got a, a stuntman award for best vehicular stunt for that. That's fantastic. It was a good scene. Very, very 80s Bruckheimer. Oh, very 80s Bruckheimer. Uh, let's talk about editing, shall we? Arthur Coburn and Billy Weber. There, you know, the editing. I think um, it was it was solidly edited. I think it works fine. But I think there were some interesting points that I read about the editing that speaks to uh, just how good editors can be and what they can really bring to the table in a project. Um, there were two scenes that uh, that I read about. One was at the beginning when Mikey and Foley are at the bar, bar together and, and Foley's just like, yeah, why didn't you ever turn me in? And Mikey's like, don't you know? I love you, man. That whole thing. Apparently, audiences really hated it. There was a lot of um, laughter at, at Mikey and all of that. It just, you know, it, at the time, people just thought there was too much uh, subtext going on in that scene, apparently, and didn't fit what they were wanting it to be. So Paramount wanted to cut it. And so uh, Brest and his and, and Weber, one of the editors, went in and really worked at cutting and trimming just little bits off of looks and all of that with that whole scene. Because Brest really felt that was a, a solid uh, character moment for these characters, didn't want to cut it. He wanted to keep it in. And the work that they did together really helped save the scene. It, it helped avoid any overtones it was creating and just made a, a more authentic scene. So I, I thought that was an interesting one. Paired with uh, all the stuff with Bronson Pinchot, we already talked about with him and Eddie Murphy, a lot of their stuff was improvised and their scenes, every time they shot, it was so different and everything was going in so many different directions that when the studio looked at it, they were concerned that it would never be able to get cut together. And so they wa- they were wanting reshoots. But uh, again, Brest and his editor worked really hard to, to take all of that footage and cut something together that was completely cohesive and saving the day so they didn't have to do any reshoots. Thank goodness. I know, because it's, uh, it's such just comedy work. gold. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, absolute gold. I think, you know, even if the editing isn't something that really screams out, hey, look at how I edited this film, I think these are really good points as to what an editor can do to help uh, kind of save what the director is trying to do with the story. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, You wanted to talk about the music. Harold Faltermeyer, we'll just talk about the score first, and I mean, his Axel F theme, uh, which is just, you know, this great blend of techno pop and funk 
truly an iconic score. It's so just, you know, hummable. It's just easily gets into your head and it doesn't leave. Um, Martin Brest really kind of wanted a score and he and Harold Faltermeyer uh, put this together, kind of modeling after the Pink Panther theme, after the Third Man theme, kind of this strong theme that's used constantly in the film um, as kind of defining the character. And in this particular case, as a theme really representing Foley and his mischievousness. And Faltermeyer, uh, you got to give the guy some you know, strong credit. I mean, he's in the eighties in particular, this, he did uh, the running man and top gun. He, uh, so he's, you know, he's, he's been around a long time. He did this on uh, the, the ax left theme took three synthesizers at the time, a Roland Jupiter eight, a Roland JX three P and a Yamaha DX seven people, the most famous synthesizer ever. That's the one I had. <laughs> That's actually the one that I learned to play the Axle F theme on. I felt like oh, such nice. a boss. Oh, my goodness. Uh, anyway, so I, I actually really like the Axel F theme. I think it works really well, and I think it has it has so many different layers and different, um, you know, when you, when you uh, deconstruct the parts, each individual part actually works on its own, uh, and, and it, it is used, I think, very effectively uh, throughout the film, such that it doesn't feel repetitive. It feels like motion, uh, and, and I, I think it works great. I, I do too. The, there are often times in films where they choose to use a particular theme over and over and over again where I feel like, you know, it didn't work and I just felt like the theme was just constantly hitting me over the head. In the three examples that I, you know, or the two examples these guys had, Pink Panther theme and the Third Man theme, I think those work exceedingly well in the film. And using those as models, I think, was a great idea because you're right, the Axel F theme used as it is throughout this film works really well. Yeah. Now, the the uh, soundtrack. Did you have the soundtrack in the 80s? Oh, yeah. Of course. Yeah. I, this was one of those ones that I had and listened to uh, just nonstop. Actually, I think it was my dad who had this soundtrack. And, yeah. and I kind of uh, pilfered it from him and ended up listening to it probably far more than he ever did. I pretty much knew it from beginning to end and just loved listening to it. Um, now you look at the soundtrack, there are definitely some songs on it that I don't think I'd ever want to hear again. Um, don't get stopped in Beverly Hills by Shalimar. Do you really want my love by junior emergency by Rocky Robbins? Uh, gra- uh, what's, uh, and then, uh, rock and roll me again by the system. Some interesting classics, but I actually really still enjoy the Patti LaBelle songs and the Pointer Sisters. And I know those are probably ones that hit you over the head as far as way too 80s, but New Attitude, Stir It Up, Neutron Dance. I don't know. Those to me are just, they fit so well with the the movie and I still love listening to them. (laughs) That doesn't surprise me, actually. I got (laughs) to tell you, it does not surprise me. It is the, so what is it? it? It opens on Glenn Fry. Right, um, and then we but immediately then what, go into Neutron Dance when Neutron the, uh, Dance, the yeah. truck is getting uh, stolen. Which I think is like obviously I can't I can't unpair those two things in my head when I hear the music start and you know he says let's get out of here and the truck starts and then the music starts. <laughs> I, obviously that's of a piece, but it, boy did it did it uh, does it not hold up for me? Uh, it just seems really silly. But you do have to admit. This is Jerry Bruckheimer. This is a perfect example of what Jerry Bruckheimer was really doing with the films that he was doing at the time and for quite a long period of his career. 
where he would really design the movies to fit the soundtrack or design the soundtrack to fit the movie. Really just kind of made it all one whole thing, right? And I, I think he does it here. He does it in Top Gun. I mean, it just really kind of became a, a, a signature almost of what he would do with the films that he was producing. And in this one, he and Brest both wanted the music and the score to drive the action not sound effects. They really wanted it to be the music. And I think this kind of kicks off what Bruckheimer is doing. So, you know, you got to give it some credit. No, and, and I do like give it, it credit. No, and that, I absolutely give it the, that very credit, Andy. But I think the, the the thing that I'm reflecting on is just how terrible the music of our youth really is. <laughs> well, yes. Like pop I music I, of the eighties was is it just it's naturally dated, and there are some uh, there are some acts that really uh, hold up, but uh, there are some that certainly don't. And I find it so interesting that Glenn Fry writes one of the most um, uh, one of the most dated songs on the soundtrack, and yet he's responsible also for some songs that are absolutely timeless in his career. So you know, I, I it's it's more a commentary on on you know what was considered popular when we were you know, young teenagers. Blech. How dumb were we? I completely agree, but I still like him. (laughs) Guilty pleasures, I guess. What can I say? (laughs) Uh, This movie has been uh, on a roller coaster of remakes and promises uh, since its release. Oh, yes. Beverly Hills Cop 2, uh, directed by Tony Scott, came out in 87. Beverly Hills Cop 3, directed by John Landis, came out in 94. You know, this reminded me that uh, when we did our, uh, I think it was Couples on the Run uh, series a number of years ago, that I think uh, Steve Sarmento mentioned, you know, you guys should have thrown in uh, the Blues Brothers because then you would have had uh, three Couples on the Run films that we uh, would have done that all the directors ended up doing a Beverly Hills Cop film. Because we oh, already that's did, really funny. Tony Scott did True Romance. And then uh, we have uh, obviously Martin Brest did uh, did Midnight Run, so we could yeah. have we could have brought something really together there, but alas, we didn't. Uh, there was a television uh, series in the works, apparently. Apparently, yeah. I guess uh, Sean Ryan uh, wrote the pilot, and Barry Sonnenfeld directed it. Brandon T. Jackson played Axel Foley's son. I guess that it uh, tested well, even though the series was not picked up. But apparently, it was enough for Bruckheimer. And Paramount to apparently, as of January 2016, one year ago, apparently start trying to develop a fourth film with Brett Ratner at the helm. So who knows if that's still something that they're, they're talking about. I'll be curious to see if they kick it off, though. I, I will, too. I think one of the things that I had read, I don't know about the, the I can't vouch for the truth of it, but um, uh, that in that particular show, there was a cameo of... Um, Axel himself, Eddie Murphy himself, and that that so overshadowed uh, the uh, the role that Brandon Jackson was portraying that they thought, you know, maybe there is enough credibility of Eddie Murphy to to revise this role that we need to we need to put the brakes on and and actually see if we can do this as a film. Um, So clearly, even after, you know, a decade and a half of tough, uh, tough films, Eddie Murphy still has a lot of pull. I mean, we always pull for Eddie. I, I really yeah. am always hoping that he's going to do stuff. I mean, he did Mr. Church, which really kind of got, uh, you know, creamed at the box office and totally. the, the reviews and stuff. But um, I, I'm hoping that he'll he'll start getting doing some yeah. good stuff again. Any awards for this one? Uh, yeah, it got nominated at the Golden Globes for Best uh, Motion Picture Musical or Comedy, Lost to Romancing the Stone, which I would 
probably pick over this one. Um, yeah. Eddie Murphy was also nominated for Best uh, Actor in a Comedy Musical uh, at the Golden Globes and lost to Dudley Moore for Mickey and Maude. I don't remember much about that one, but I'd probably pick Eddie Murphy. Um, at the Academy Awards, it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, which I, I know you're quite surprised by. Um, lost to Robert Benton for Places in the Heart, which uh, is not a film I really care for that much. But it is definitely a serious one, so I can see why they probably yeah. picked it. Right. Uh, at the BAFTAs, it was nominated for Best Score. Harold Faltermeyer lost to Maurice Jarre for Witness. And, you know, a number of other things, including a Grammy. It did win the Best Score Soundtrack album. And, uh, and we already talked about, uh, you know, why that album spoke at the time. That's right. You know, it's interesting. I, you know, I feel like in terms of I, I, I'm, I am not as keen on this movie as I was, and I don't think I'm as keen on this movie as you are. I do want to revisit the great Roger Ebert and his review. Do you mind? Go for it. Uh, he gave this film two stars, two and a half stars. And uh, I, I just want to read a couple of points because I think this is fascinating. Eddie Murphy looks like the latest victim of the star magic syndrome in which it is assumed that a movie will be a hit simply because it stars an enormously talented person. Thus, it is not necessary to give much thought to what he does or says or to the story he finds himself occupying. Beverly Hills Cop is a movie with an enormously appealing idea. A tough black detective from Detroit goes to Beverly Hills to avenge the murder of a friend. But the filmmakers apparently expected Murphy to carry this idea entirely by himself. Murphy is one of the smartest and quickest young comic actors in the movies, but he is not an action hero. Despite his success in 48 Hours and by plugging him into an action movie, the producers of Beverly Hills Cop reveal a lack of confidence in their original story inspiration. It's like they had a story conference that boiled down to, Hey gang, here's a great idea. Let's turn it into a standard idea and fill it with cliches and take out the satire and put in a lot of machine guns. <laughs> and that's how he wraps up his review. So I, I'm not saying I agree with that entirely, but I am saying that for the first time in my viewing history of this film, I saw that in this movie. And I found that ultimately uh, sad. That's interesting. I, you know, I can, I can definitely see his point. I totally see where he's coming from. I think for me, I just ended up finding the the characters. Uh, I don't know. I guess I just really liked the characters all through the film, and whatever they were doing with the story, I wasn't as worried about. I mean, obviously, there's just it, there's just very straightforward exposition. It's just a very straightforward, straight down the line sort of story. But I bought into the characters, and for that, I give it probably more credit than Ebert did. How did it do in the box office? Ah, uh, well, young uh, Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer kept the budget for this one at a tight $15 million. I guess you could say the studio really kind of kept it tight and they had to live with it, uh, which is just under $35 million in today's dollars. Considering that Bruckheimer's latest Michael Bay Transformers extravaganza is estimated at $260 million, I'd say this probably constitutes as Bruckheimer's early indie days. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the movie came out on uh, December 5th, 1984, opposite the 2001 follow-up, 2010, and Clint Eastwood's City Heat. It shot to number one and uh, bumped Chuck Norris's Missing in Action out of the top slot. Beverly Hills Cop kept making more money each week due to incredible word of mouth, peaking in its fourth week when it grossed over $20 million in five days. Wow. It stayed number one for 14 non-consecutive weeks and tied Tootsie for the films with the second most weeks at number one, the first being Titanic. 
ended up becoming the highest grossing R-rated film of all time until The Matrix Reloaded broke that record of all films. It went on to become the domestic top earner for 1984, raking in almost $235 million and then another $81.6 million overseas, making a total gross of just over $316 million or almost $734 million in today's dollars. It was the second highest grossing film worldwide in 1984 behind Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And adjusted for inflation is the third highest grossing R-rated film behind The Exorcist and The Godfather, both of which we've talked about on the show. Uh, It lands with an impressive adjusted profit per finished minute of uh, $6.6 million, making over 21 times its budget. All in all, quite a fitting income for a film set in Beverly Hills. That is fantastic. Indeed, indeed. Uh, you know, we talk about this, uh, all these numbers, you talk about these numbers every week, and I don't think we have plugged the fact that you made this spreadsheet public, and it's available in the extras tab on our website, so you can actually follow along and look at the numbers that Andy is talking about and get a little sense of context. So uh, do that. Look for, the, um, look for the budget spreadsheet, extras tab at thenextreel.com. And uh, I've also started doing it. I have uh, stuff in there you can look at for the speakeasy and for the film board and just some other random ones that we've done. So lots of stuff to look at. Yes, absolutely. Check that out. Okay, let's do it, Andy. Let's uh, let's let's go ahead and rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and uh, you can slide up right in your show notes, right in the show notes here on your podcast app of choice, and uh, you'll find the link. I put the link to Beverly Hills Cop right there. It'll jump you straight to Flickchart, so you can add it to your own list. Let's see how we do. All right, first up, we have Beverly Hills Cop or Mad Max, the original. I would watch Beverly Hills Cop first. Yeah, I'm going to say Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. Beverly Hills Cop or Trading Places. What a fitting uh, pairing we've got. Boy, I, I honestly, I'm torn. I I am too. I liked them both quite a bit. Um, kind of more than I was expecting in both yeah. cases. I think there is more substance to trading places. I find my myself reflecting on trading places, and I have found myself talking about trading places to other people more frequently this week, certainly than I expected, absolutely more than Beverly Hills Cop. I think I would go with Beverly Hills Cop. I mean, I agree with you, but I felt like trading places had more um, issues with the film and just things that I felt were uh, really out of place and a little more kind of difficult to watch. I would probably pick Beverly Hills Cop first. So we'll have to do it. Okay, let's do it. Okay. Are you, are you ready? I'm ready. One, One two, two, three. Paper. Rock. Oh. Trading places. All right. There it is. Trading places. All right. Beverly Hills Cop or The Wind Rises. Little Miyazaki airplane action. I'm going to say Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, I, I, Beverly Hills Cop. Beverly Hills Cop or some Clint Eastwood, The Outlaw, Josie Wales. Outlaw, Josie Wales. Outlaw, Josie Wales for me too. Beverly Hills Cop, or one of your favorites, The Man in the White Suit. I imagine you're Beverly Hills Cop. I am, but I'm pretty easy on this one. Are you? Yeah, I'd give you The I, Man in the I, White Suit if that's I think you're I going. would. I think I would watch Man in the White Suit first. Okay. All right, thank you. You're very generous. Okay. <laughs> well, you're it's a, a giver, good, Andy. It's a, it's a great film. <laughs> uh, Beverly Hills Cop or Apollo 13. Definitely Apollo oh, 13. Apollo 13, yeah, Absolutely. I like the the Spanish language poster for Beverly Hills Cop. Super detective and Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) Very funny. All right, Beverly Hills Cop or The Prestige. The Prestige. I'm going to say The Prestige, yeah. Beverly Hills Cop or The Abyss. I'm saying The Abyss. The Abyss it is. 
And we've got Beverly Hills Cop or a little Bong Joon-ho, Mother. We're going with Mother. Oh, that was weird. Yeah, Mother. Yeah, Yeesh. Great film. All right, Beverly Hills Cop lands at 105 on our flick chart. I think that's wow. a good spot. 105 out of 282. Yeah, I think it's a great spot. And what great matchups, too. We haven't talked about any of those movies in so long. It really was a solid. I'd forgotten we talked there. about the abyss and <laughs> it's been a and, while. Wow, that's great. Uh, what does this do for your letterbox ranking? I still enjoyed this, and I had a great time with the characters. I'm at a four star. I am at a three star on this one, Andy. I think I I fell this time around. Uh, so uh, a solid it makes a solid three and a half. It's solid three and a half. Yes, as solid as threes and halves are. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. What are you going to do? This is, this is great. And so this was part of our Eddie Murphy in the 80s series. Uh, we are wrapping it up uh, next week uh, with our third film, yeah? Yeah, we are going to be skipping over The Golden Child, skipping over Beverly Hills Cop 2, and we're going to be going all the way to John Landis's next collaboration with Eddie Murphy, Coming to America. I think Definitely. I have seen that movie exactly one time. I think I've seen it twice, so... Uh... I'm very much looking forward to revisiting it. Excellent. Back to Landis. Uh, uh, All right. That's next week. Until then, Andy, I got to go to bed. All right. That's cool. Hey, don't worry about me. We've got cocaine and coffee here. We're going to get wired and have a big party. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. I don't even know. There's not obviously there aren't a lot of one and two star reviews. <laughs> I think there are four one star reviews, and and you win with I think the only two star review. Is that correct? The only one. That's right. Uh, Sassy comes to us from November 2013, and Sassy says way too much cursing. She says, to be fair, I only watched about the first 10 minutes. There was way too much cursing, which detracted from the movie, and I did not continue to watch it. Now, Sassy, honey, Bubbala, it's an R-rated Eddie Murphy movie. That really should say enough. Oh, Just, so just saying. All right, so true. Yours? Well, uh, Amazon customer uh, gives it two stars. It's not like I remembered. There are a few things that I thought I remembered about this movie. I remember it being very 80s. I remember lots of action, and I remember great humor. Well, it's definitely 80s, but as for the rest, some movies just don't age well, even when you mentally put them in the context of their time period. Movies like Top Gun and The Karate Kid are similarly classic 80s, but for some reason those movies remain watchable in their 80s sort of way, while watching this one in 2015 basically ruined all the good memories that I had of this flick. Ouch. (sighs) You know, I see it. I see it. And let me just say, uh, I would take Highway to the Danger Zone over the heat is on any day of the week. (laughs) I would too. I would too. (laughs) Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. 
and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.